you turn to Proverbs chapter 31, the sayings of King Lemuel, we'll see what we can do. Now remember that this is a poem in honor of the virtuous woman. Every single verse about her begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's the ABC of the wise woman. Now, sometimes it gets a bit discouraging and you think, where do I start? How do I begin? Well, remember, a virtue a day keeps the devil away. And so what you need to do is to choose one. And maybe as you listen to me, you can pray that the Holy Spirit will show you which piece of this talk is for you. I always find it helpful when I'm listening to a speaker or a teacher or listening to my husband preach on a Sunday to say, Lord, which part of this is for me, just for me? Now, obviously, all of it is for me, but there is a specific part that I can get hold of. And so I'm hoping that each of you will listen to the Spirit's voice for that today. Remember, she was a woman who feared the Lord. She was queen of his heart because she obeyed him, she feared him, she had a reverential trust with a hatred of evil. That's the definition of fear of the Lord. And therefore, she was queen of her own heart. The thing that makes us thoroughly content and thoroughly happy with ourselves is knowing that we're making him happy. And if we could only get hold of that, we'd do away with a lot of need for the counseling that is wonderfully available to us, but perhaps wouldn't be needed anymore. We met this wonderful lady, and today we're going to be introduced to her husband because he is here as well. We see in the text that he is hidden, and yet he is there. He is sitting in the gates, and he is very much around the family. So are our children. But remember that 10 through the end of this is the perfect family. It's the model. They didn't exist. So as I talk about a perfect marriage today, the bionic Christian marriage, remember, this is what we shoot for. This is how it is. This is what it's all about. This, in a sense, is what the scripture lays forward as principles for biblical living in relationship to your husband in your marriage. At the question time after evening edition last night, one of the questions was, my teenagers were talking to me. Her best friends just got divorced. We have people getting divorced all the way around us. And my daughter just threw up her hands and said, then what's the point of getting married? And she said, I panicked. Here's my Christian kids saying, well, it looks so unsure. You can never be quite sure. We went to the guy's wedding, and it looked absolutely wonderful. And now they're getting a divorce. So what's the point of us getting married at all? I suggested that she knew where to turn in her Bible to explain to those kids that the Bible teaches that marriage is ordained of God. And you need to know that. Mark chapter 10 is the chapter where Jesus talks about marriage. And read it over with your children. And know where to turn in the Bible. This is another good place to turn and perhaps to read it together as a family. The other thing I suggested was making sure the kids read some books. And I would suggest something like Stuart's and mine. Marriage matters. It's a story. It's light. It's sort of a fun reading book. And teenagers are gobbling it up out there on the campuses, so I'm told by the publisher. And so other books like Fit to be Tied, Bill Hybel's book, there are lots of good books that teenagers can certainly reach for and read. 
and that they should be getting an idea of what the Bible says about marriage. So what does Proverbs 31 say about this whole business? Well, there are some words here I'm going to throw out to you that I found as I looked at the text. And the first one is this couple were complementary. They were the perfect couple. They complemented each other. They didn't conflict. They didn't compete. They seemed to delight in their differences. They seemed to be able to cope with the fact that they were not clones, that they were very different in their thinking, in their ways of doing things. I mean, just look here. In verse 14, let's look at her. She is bringing her food from afar. She is like the merchant ships. That didn't mean she looked like a merchant ship. It means that she was busy out and about getting the right bargains and looking after the food for the household. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. Verse 18, she sees her trading as profitable. Verse 20, she's opening her arms to the poor, getting involved in the hospital pink lady thing and all of that. She is busy. She's a hands-on sort of person. She's a task-orientated woman. Now, meanwhile, we look to see what her husband is doing. And her husband, as far as I can see, isn't doing very much. Verse 23. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. Now, when I first came to Christ, I was taught to ask the text questions, and the text would answer me back. And so I want to know about this man, why are you sitting in the city gate? And the simple answer, if you don't think about it, could be, well, what's the point of going home? She's never there. (laughs) Well, I really don't think that's why he was sitting in the city gate. You have to look a little bit deeper and understand that the culture of the times was this, that if you were a leader, that's where you were, that's city hall, that's the judge's domain. People brought their conflicts to the city gates. So the most important people and the government and the decisions about who to go to war to and all of those things happened at the city gate. That was the place of the respected leaders of the city. And so here we have a very obvious thing here. This man was a leader. He was a leader. And so was she. And you say, look at that. They're complementary. They're the perfect couple. They're both leaders. Now, we don't know that for certain. Don't presume. And certainly in a marriage, you might look at people and say, well, they're just perfect. They're they're both matched. I'm sure that in many, many ways they didn't because there isn't a couple I know that matches in the sense of being alike. And the problem with marriage is if we're going to complement each other, we have to celebrate the differences. We have to celebrate the differences in our personalities in the way we do things, in our thinking, in our parenting. You know, sometimes you get a man and a woman and they're different in the way they want to parent and the way they want to spend their vacation and the way that they want to relax. And what you've got to learn is to celebrate those differences and don't insist on trying to change your spouse to be like you. Now, this might sound very obvious and maybe you know it, and yet subtly we manipulate to make that happen if we really are honest with ourselves. Often I get a phone call and somebody says on the other end of the phone, is the pastor in? And I say no because he never is. And they say, well, I need to talk to him. And they sound a bit desperate. And I say, what's the matter? And they say, I want a divorce. And I say, well, he doesn't do divorces. 
and they say, no, 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 you don't understand, we're in trouble. I say, I do understand. But you see, he really doesn't do divorces. He institutes Christian marriages. Yes, but the problem is our marriage is over. We're in total conflict. We are so different. We're incompatible. And I always love and push to get them to tell me that because then I say, oh, didn't you know that's the reason for marriage, not divorce? What attracted you? The incompatibility, the opposites, the things you don't have that you would like to have. And so their strengths are your weaknesses. Your weaknesses are their strengths. And so opposites attract, as you know. And then after marriage, they begin to irritate because you cannot complement. You can't put them together. You can't fit them. And so what you tend to do is pull them along and try and make them like you. And that never works either. I can illustrate this very well from my husband and my point of view. Stuart and I are so different. Now, he was a bank inspector, and as you know, when my checkbook gets in a mess, I open another account. And so here we have two totally incompatible people getting married. And he has never really believed anybody can be as stupid as I am about numbers. He thinks I'm doing it on purpose. <laughs> and uh, one of these days, he's going to believe me. It just isn't there. But we are very different in many ways. I like to prepare, for example, messages three months ahead of time, if I can. Now, you might not think that because you're always saying, what are you going to teach at Young Moms? And I say, I don't know yet, I don't know yet. But actually, it's not that I'm unprepared, I'm usually overprepared. I've got a lot of things I want to do and I don't know which one I'm going to do. And I do my homework and I prepare and I learn it and I practice it and I sleep with it and I get up with it and I, I just, that's the way I work. Stuart reads. He is a bookaholic. If there's a group for bookaholics, he should be the president of it. I mean, if, you know, a real help group. It is incredible. I have these nightmares of being eaten alive by books. <laughs> but he is able to retain, and he can tell you facts about the first moonwalk and things like that. It's not that he's, he's practically got a photographic memory. It's incredible. And he, so he learns differently. He prepares differently. He just reads, 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 reads. He'd read brown paper if you gave it to him. And then he gathers all of that somewhere in here and computes it all and puts it in an outline. That's all he has. And then he gets up and preaches it. So when we came to the States, we had been a sort of a part in ministry with him traveling so long. I got so excited. Now we were going to do this together. And we got an invitation to do a marriage seminar in Racine. And I said, Stuart, let's do it. This is wonderful. We're going to minister together instead of ministering apart for all these years. So he said, yes, okay, that sounds fun. We'll do it. Well, two months ahead of it, I said to him, now, can we sit down and talk about what we're going to do? And, and we're going to get us something so I can start. Because, darling, you know, I have to do this. I have to I work a lot harder than you do at this. And and yes, 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 we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. And we got to a week before and we had still not done it. And my stomach was in a knot and I was absolutely panicking. And so the day came and we had still not had time to sit down and do this. I had gone ahead and prepared a little talk because I could see this wasn't going to work. And it, I didn't know whether it would fit or what it was like. So on the morning as we were about to set out, I called upstairs to Stuart who was rushing around upstairs. Do you yet know what we're going to speak about? And he came downstairs and he looked at me and he said, Jill, you know, I you know the material you need to use. You just don't know you know it. You've got all this stuff. You've done these things. You know it. You, you do. And I said, well, that's not the point. 
and we had this incredible row, and I burst into tears and got in the car and drove to Racine, crying my eyes out. Well, this was on the way to teach on marriage, of course. <laughs> and we arrived there, and I say, well, you better do it, because, I mean, I'm in no fit to stay to do anything. I'll, you know, just do it, just teach it. He said, no, they've asked us both to do it. I said, Stuart, why won't you look at me? He said, well, I'll lead you inside. And so he took my hand because I couldn't see. My eyes were closed. <laughs> and we get inside all the time with me saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then he says, we'll talk about it. I said, what do you mean we'll talk about it? He said, in front of them. That's what we'll do. I said, we'll what? <laughs> he said, yes, we'll discuss this. And he said, they can listen if they like, but this will be the part of the seminar that will be very practical and helpful. So here I stand, obediently but wetly, and we discuss, and we do forget them, and he says, now Jill and I have had a little difference of opinion, that was putting it mildly, and we're just going to talk about it before we start our teaching, if you'll excuse us. And so, we begin to have this dialogue, and we try to explain what went wrong, that we are very different, and that we do things differently, and I told him it would be a lot better if he did it my way, and he told me it would be a lot better if I did it his way. And we began to move together and compromise. And we said we were sorry, and we made up. And he gave me a little kiss on my cheek, of course. This was public. And then he, he said, now, let's talk about this. What went wrong? You've got to learn to fight fair. You've got to learn to resolve conflict. You've got to learn to come together. And he said to me, Jill, I have not been fair to you. I understand that that's what you need. I will try and get to this two hours before the event next time. <laughs> And I compromised too and said that I understood that's how he worked best and I would try to relax a little bit and believe I knew what I knew I knew and that we would try and work together on it. So we are very, very different. And if you're going to complement each other, you have to take your strengths and make them fit. It's been very difficult for Stuart and I to minister together. We've found the way to do it. He takes an hour, I take an hour. We do not try to dialogue anymore. That was the first and last time we ever tried to do that. It doesn't work with our style, with our gifting, with the way that we are. Not long ago, a psychiatrist was listening to us talk, and he said, I've never heard such an example of left brain, right brain in my life. He said, Jill, you go for the heart, and he goes for the head, and you get us all. And I realized that God had helped us complement each other in ministry. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of talking. It takes a lot of tears sometimes. But it can be done. If you're going to complement each other, you have to celebrate the differences, and we're able to do that now. Now, if we're going to celebrate the differences, you have to accept each other as you are. And acceptance is not resignation. There are differences between accepting somebody as they are and resigning yourself to living with this stupid man. You know what I mean? That's resignation. Oh, all right, have your own way. All right, do it, you know, and I'll just, I'll have to bend, and I'll have to do this. That's resignation. Acceptance accepts, celebrates the difference, says, this is how he is. Now then, how can I fill up that which is lacking? In his weaknesses, my strengths can match. And how can I accept what he is and say, Lord, in what redemptive way can you use this? That's acceptance. You see the situation. You are very different people. Now, how can we buy this back? How can we maximize it? How can we make these two people one in a sense that's going to have more impact in our world, in our family, in the ministry? 
So they were complementary. There's no doubt about it. They were very different, but they're obviously doing their thing and happy about it. That's the second word, contented. And you say, well, no wonder they're contented. They're rich and they're powerful. Have you noticed she's got servants? Have you noticed she's clothed in purple, which is, the word is double, means she had long johns on. <laughs> it, it means she was warm for the winter. You know, she has no fear for the snow. She is dressed in purple, which of course is the color of queens and royalty and leaders' wives and all of that. But the word is also double, warmth and thickness, which was very expensive in those days. And you say, well, I'd be contented if I was rich and if I was powerful. That helps a marriage if you're not always arguing about money and you're not always strapped. Don't always believe that. Sometimes it does help, certainly, to be financially viable, and there isn't that strain. But it is not what your life possesses that matters or that possesses you. A man's life does not consist in the things that he possesses. Doesn't consist in the things that he possesses. I always remember my dad sitting in this beautiful 800-year-old house over the mantelpiece, which was absolutely magnificent. The uh, 12 apostles were, were um, carved in the oak. And he was sitting there, his body language looking very miserable and very depressed. And my mother gave me a drink, and she said, take this drink to your father and try and cheer him up. I don't know what's wrong with him. And I remember standing at the end of that incredibly beautiful old English room that was our home, with the drink in my hand, looking at my father. I was not converted. And thinking to myself, what's wrong with him? He's got the world, and it's not enough. He's got the world, and it's not enough. It's very easy for me when I came to Christ, therefore, to understand that a man's life does not consist in the things that he possesses. For I had seen that in my father's life. All his life he had dreamed. He'd started on a bicycle, going from house to house, asking, can I mend your car? He refused ever to work for anybody but himself. He was going to do it, and he did it. And he became the richest automobile man in the whole of the north of England. And he made a lot of money, and he bought this beautiful property. We had two or three homes, and this was how it was. And his salmon river, he, if I could just have a salmon river, I could just fish any time I wanted if I could do this. And then he got it, and it wasn't enough. And then you get the next thing, and you get the next thing. And it's never enough. And it's just like a hole. <laughs> and the more you put in it, it just falls out at the bottom. And yet, if you've never been in that position, it's very hard to be convinced that things or vacations or whatever it might be that would add to your life would not bring you contentment. But God can give us contentment with such things as we have. Be content, the Bible says, with such things as you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I remember in those days when my parents had this beautiful country home in the Lake District, and they had a home in Liverpool where my father's business was, and they would come up to their country home for the weekend. And our house at Caponry, where we were based at the youth center, was sort of in the middle. And so they would always stop in, and we'd have a cup of tea, and we'd chat. And I remember one day my mother saying to me, in this little tiny house that was our home at that point, a little gate house, there were four gates to this big estate where the youth center was. And the youth center was in the castle, and we lived in one of the little tiny gate houses. And it was very tiny, and it was very uncomfortable, and it was very damp, and it wasn't at all glamorous. And my mother said, very wistfully, Jesus lives here, doesn't he? 
And I said gently, yes, Mom, and I'd rather live in my cottage with Jesus than in my castle without him. And she just nodded very sadly. And I, I can still, even as I'm telling you, see her face. Sad. She had everything, but it wasn't enough. I have often quoted my favorite poem on this, Scott Wesley Brown's Things. Things upon the mantle, things on every shelf, things that others gave me, things I gave myself, things I've stored in boxes that don't mean much anymore, or magazines and memories behind the attic door, things. Things on hooks and hangers, things on ropes and rings, things I have that blind me to the pettiness of things. Am I like the rich young ruler, ruled by all I own? Jesus came and asked me, could I leave it all alone? Lord, I look to heaven beyond the veil of time to gain eternal insight that nothing's really mine and to only ask for daily bread and all contentment brings to find freedom as your service in the midst of all these things for discarded in the junkyard and rusting in the rain are things that took the finest years of lifetime to obtain. And whistling through the tombstones, the hollow breezes sing, a song of dreams surrendered to the tyranny of things. That's powerful. Scott Wesley Brown's song, it's his words. And you know, when I think about that, I have seen it in my own family and know it in my own experience. When I look at the Proverbs 31, woman and man, and certainly about her, there is that contentment. Her children called her blessed, happy, and the word is contented, fulfilled, filled up, full, fulfilled, filled full. <laughs> that's contentment. And that's what I believe women are looking for today. They're looking for peace of mind. They're looking for contentment. And only God can give it. And it isn't in things. They are possessors of things, but God could trust them with things. I'm quite sure I am not rich and wealthy because God can't trust me with it. I've often wondered about that, and that's what the conclusion I've come to it. I never really learned how to cope with money. I love to make money for causes. In fact, I really do. I'm glad I'm a Christian because I do love to make money. When we sell our Briscoe books or when we sell tapes, all that money goes into ministry. And uh, the books send us around the world at our expense so that we can minister to other people. That's what Briscoe Ministries is all about. And I don't know if God could trust me with a lot. He does have people he can trust who have the gift of giving, the gift of generosity. You know the Bible says, don't give grudgingly, don't give of necessity, but give hilariously. And there are some people that are hilarious givers. They cannot wait to make it to give it away. And they have this generosity of spirit. And when you look at the Proverbs 31 woman, that's how it is. The money she is making, strengthening her arms, getting out there, doing it, buying it, looking at it, trading, is used for her family, for her servants, for the poor. It's used for the society. She's a giver. And that brings contentment. Now in Philippians, Paul says, 
I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, in need or in plenty, when I'm fed or I'm hungry. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation. Did you notice that word, I've learned? Did you know contentment can be learned? Are you sitting there thinking, well, I'm not content, or I'm sort of content, or I'm half content, or quarter content, and, and maybe if I just sit around, I'll be content. It'll fall from heaven and fill me up. It can be learned. And who's going to teach you? I don't know. I don't know who the teacher's going to be. Maybe the teacher would be a death in the family. Maybe the teacher would be a husband that left you, or a difficult marriage, or a child that isn't doing very well with learning disabilities, or worse in the teenage years when you discover drugs in the top drawer. I don't know who or what the teacher is going to be, but that's school. And Paul said, and he was sitting in jail when he said it, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And he comes out with that wonderful verse that we often quote but don't remember where the context is. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's the context? Contentment, prison, tough things. And his friends have left him. His leaders have left him. And he's all alone. And he writes and says, listen, my teacher at the moment is prison, but I have learned in whatsoever state, even here, therewith to be content, because I can do all things. The content of contentment is Christ. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He didn't have anything. He didn't even have a warm robe. In fact, he sends in another letter and says to Timothy, bring me my warm coat. This is a damp, horrible cell. I'm shivering. I've got cold. And I'm an old man. But I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And he found that the best things in life were free. And you know, as we raise our children in this incredibly materialistic society, we need to remember that, and we need to fight for the simplicity of the lifestyle. We need to de-accumulate. Every time we start to accumulate, say to yourself, now what can I de-accumulate? If I possess something, I need to give something away. We need to think of simplified fun for our children instead of spending the earth entertaining them. We need to use the park system. We need to use the best things in life that are free. We really need to build into our children the knowledge that contentment does not come with accumulation or they will grow up with a greed need and that's not the way to go. And when I look at this woman, I see the generosity, the giving, the insistence of giving and I am guilty so often of not having that attitude, that gratitude attitude that leads me to live like that. So we have complementary couple. We have a contented couple maximizing their potential with their gifting. And they don't compare, I'm sure, with what others have. Something you can help yourself with. Have you noticed you only compare up, never down? You know, if you're going to compare what you have with someone else, you always compare with someone else that's got more than you have. Try making a little mental exercise to compare down. We never do it. Oh, I've got something they don't have. <laughs> that sort of really helps. And I know that with my trips to 
Cambodia and Colombia. I remember coming back from Cambodia, being with people that had lost every single one of their family, coming back to a family and being grateful for that, thankful. Going to Colombia and being thankful for the safety that we enjoy and the police force that we have. And I think thankfulness, being thankful, saying count your blessings, name them one by one, all the way, every day, is going to help. A thankfulness a day keeps the devil away, as well as a virtue a day. Third word, commitment. Be as committed as you can possibly be to the relationship in your life, and especially to your husband's relationship. At the moment. Now, why do I say at the moment? Because this is a moment-by-moment thing. Commitment isn't something you did when you got married. Commitment is an ongoing attitude. I am in this forever. And maybe we need to say that to each other and to ourselves every day of our lives. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her, so he will have no need of spoil. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her so that he will have no need of spoil. So who can find this virtuous woman? Well, who imagines any man is searching the world for a woman who will break his heart? A man is looking for a woman who will look after his heart for him. Have you ever heard of a situation where a boyfriend says to his girlfriend, please tear this heart of mine into shreds for me? Dangle it over the fickle fancies of your unfair expectations. Play with it, manipulate it, break it for me, sweetheart. A queen of hearts has the sense to know a man needs a woman he can trust with his heart. That's the sort of woman that men are looking for. A woman who is faithful, out of sight. Now, Proverbs 12.4 says, A worthy wife is her husband's joy and crown. The other kind corrodes his strength and tears down everything he does. She that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. A worthy wife is her husband's joy and crown. The other kind corrodes his strength and tears down everything he does. Are you a worthy wife? Am I a worthy wife? Or are we the other kind? Now, that was a little phrase that caught my attention. And if you'll turn back in Proverbs to chapter 7, you'll see an example written down in black and white of the other kind of wife. First of all, she isn't faithful. Her husband cannot trust her with his heart when he's out of town. She's faithless. Look at verse 13, 14, and 15. Amazing verses. She gets out uses her freedom to abuse it. She's down the street. She's loud and defiant. She's dressed like a prostitute. She's dressed vulnerably, sexually. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She takes hold of this guy that she finds. She kisses him with a brazen face. She says, I have fellowship offerings at home. Today I fulfill my vows. I've been to church. I'm a good Christian girl. I came out to meet you. I looked for you and found you. I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey, took his purse filled with money. He won't be home till full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose. 
till an arrow pierces his liver. Like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing, it will cost him his life. What a picture of the wayward wife. This is how it is out there. There's no holes barred. There's no lines. There's no dignity. There's nothing respected. If a man happens to be married, so what? And women go after the men. Now the men go after the women, but at the moment we're looking at the women. And I see it on the planes. I see it in the hotels I sit in. Often the restaurant's not open and the food is... It's served in the bar, and that's where you can get your sandwich. And I sit there so often, and I watch it happen. I watch it with the air hostesses, and I watch it with the captains, and I watch it with the young businessmen who are bored and who are on the road. And I see many, many, many women now traveling, sitting in that bar and getting into talk, and, and you can just see the whole thing. And I think of Proverbs 7, and I hear the smooth talk. You know, you can't help it. You're in this confined area, and I hear this flirting beginning. And I think of this passage, smooth talk, smooth talk. And I look at the way that often the women are dressed. This is a picture of the other kind of woman. Faithless, her feet never stay at home. Now, the Proverbs 31 woman, her feet never stayed at home, but she could be trusted in a world of men. And you know the thing that I have observed? A woman knows very well how to flirt and a woman knows very well how to say, I am available, I am reachable, come and get me. We all know how to do that. And if you say, I don't, I don't believe you. Because I believe with our hearts that are sinful, we all know how to do it. And we don't reserve that for our husband, which is where it should be. We reserve the right to fall to temptation and to flirt. We all know how to do it. In the same sentence, I would say, that we all know how not to do it. We all know how to say to a man, I am not available. I am spoken for. I am a faithful wife. We all know how to look at a man. And in that moment, we can be a Proverbs 7 woman or a Proverbs 31 woman. That was my problem before I was converted. I didn't, well, I probably did know it, but I used my eyes to talk. I had pretty eyes in those days. You can't see them anymore. There's too many wrinkles, but I did have pretty eyes. And I would flutter my eyelashes at these guys. And after I became a Christian, I was unaware. And one of the girls that was my leader in my Bible study group sat me down one day. I always remember it. She said, Jill, when are you going to start looking at a guy straight in the eye? You're always looking under your eyelashes. She said, it's very provocative. I said, am I? I remember going into my room and looking in the mirror. <laughs> do I do that? Realizing I did. And she said, quit it. Just quit it. Now you're a believer. And you know what I read that night in my Bible reading? It was from Job. And Job is saying how faithful he has been to the wife of his youth, who is not being very nice to him at the time. And he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look seductively at a maid. Isn't that incredible? I should read that. That very day that God's servant said to me, look a guy straight in the face, Jill. You're a believer now. You need to be a Proverbs 31 woman. And I remember going to the Bible study that night, and it was all joy. And I remember looking for men and walking up to them and going. <laughs> and it was so releasing 
to look clean, to look straight, to look without a hidden message, without a hidden agenda, with a heart that was different and pure. And every single one of us need to guard our heart and remember that our husband expects to be able to trust us with his and to guard our speech and to guard our dress and to really take this to heart. Because there's a looker and a taker out there. If you're going to be a Bathsheba, you know, if you're going to do it on the roof and let it all hang out, there'll be a David somewhere around. And what we need to do is get off the roof. And what we need to do is to look a guy straight in the eyes. And what we need to do is to remember that we can tell the men of our world, however young we are, however old we are, I'm not available. I'm taken. I'm God's. I'm a virtuous woman. So they were committed. And you know, I think of our lifestyle, and I would have to tell you in all honesty, both Stuart and I have had our opportunities to be unfaithful to each other. And we have had the pressures to be so. Living the lifestyle we lived for 10 years, with Stuart on the road and lonely, and with me at home and lonely. And we've had our opportunities. But we stood in front of God one day, and we made a commitment. In fact, before that, he gave me my ring. You've heard this story. And me waiting for all those romantic words, Shakespeare, Milton, what was it going to be? He simply put the ring on my finger and said, Jill, that's that. (laughs) And it wasn't until later I realized the worth of that and how romantic that really was. That God gave me a man who made a that's that commitment. And I made a that's that commitment. Now this is this. And the that's that commitment has to be lived out in the this this. Moment by moment and day by day. And that's why I said at the beginning of this talk, be committed every morning of your life fully, totally to your husband that God has given you. Whether he is faithful or not is totally irrelevant. You're only responsible for your own attitude. He's responsible to God for his. And what we need to do is to commit. What we need to do is to build an altar and make a covenant with our eyes. What we need to do is to build an altar and meet with our husband there and reaffirm the fact we can be trusted out of sight. That's why I wear this pin. Our 38th wedding anniversary, Stuart gave me this. And it has a Bible verse on it. We've got it in Ireland. It's hundreds of years old. And it has Mizpah on it. Because that's the place Laban and Jacob built an altar as Jacob was leaving with Laban's two daughters. And Jacob said, let's stand before God and promise him that you're going to look after my girls. You're going to be faithful to them. And Jacob, if you're not, the Lord watch between me and thee while we're absent one from another. That's the basis of Mizpah. And they called that place Mizpah, the place they promised God. And the word means watchtower. And Stuart and I built a watchtower. And we said, God is watching for our marriage. And the Lord will watch between thee and me while we are absent one from another. And I'll be faithful and you'll be faithful. And it needs to be consistent all the days of his life. This woman could be trusted, it says, all the days. She would do him good, not harm. All the days. Some of the days, one day, 
One day here? No, all the days of her life. So they were complementary. So they communicated what they wanted to say. They were consistent in their commitment and they were contented. And here we have a woman who was making him happy, doing him good. Do you do your husband good? Are you a joy? Are you doing him good? Are you trying to make him good? Let me give you a hint. You make him happy, and God will make him good. Got it? And there are a lot of women that are trying to make him good, and that doesn't make him very happy. <laughs> what you need to do is do him good. Do him good. Don't make him good. Just be his joy, and you'll find a response. Love him, bless him, enjoy him, affirm him, have fun with him, watch football with him, <laughs> instead of getting on to him about it. Appreciate him. Do him good. And I'm not saying that all of the above will have a reaction that's determinism. I'll do this, that, and the other, and he'll do this, that, and the other. That's irrelevant. You're only responsible for what God requires of you as a virtuous woman and a virtuous wife. But the husband, I believe, will respond in kind. For after all, what does a man need? He needs a woman who does him good. And here in the chapter, we see him affirming her, telling her, praising her. Many women do wonderfully. You excel them all. You're the best. And you're mine. And he releases her, gives her space, for a man of quality is never threatened by a woman of equality. He's not threatened by his wife's gifts. And he's letting her go to be the woman that she should be. And he's encouraging her. And he's fulfilling her. He is making her radiant. Ephesians 5 says the husband loves his wife even as Christ loves the church and presents the church to himself as a radiant bride. And the husband's job is to make you radiant and your job is to do him good. And when we're both doing our part, You've got a perfect marriage. Perfect, not in the sense of perfect without any blemishes and spots and wrinkles. In fact, I should write a book, Marriage Without Wrinkles. You know, the picture of the bride without spots and wrinkles will happen one day in heaven when it's all perfect. But perfect being mature at the level that you're at. You know, God says, be thou perfect as I am perfect. He doesn't mean sinless. He means as mature as you can be at the stage of Christianity that you're at. Be perfect in that sense. Be shooting for the star. Be going for it. And you'll find that your marriage will be enriched. So be complimentary. Don't try to change him. Fill up that which is lacking. Accept the differences. Be contented with such things as you have. In your relationship with Christ, content of contentment is Christ. Be committed. Uh, that's that relationship. There's no option out. Maybe your marriage is burning like a building. Throw away the key to the fire escape, folks, and then both of you will fight the flames. If you think you've got an escape route, your marriage is never going to work. Be committed. Uh, that's that commitment. And be consistent all the days of your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for Proverbs 31. And thank you that here we have a model of a woman whose husband safely trusts his heart to, who does her husband good, not evil, all the days of his life. She's a virtuous woman. She's a faithful woman. She doesn't flit and she doesn't flirt.
and she loves him to death. And she's making him happy. And God is making him good. And Lord, teach us not to play the Holy Spirit and not to play God in our husband's lives. But help us to be the fulfilled, happy, joyful, contented, fun women that you want us to be. And may our husband praise us in the gates, brag on us to his friends. May we see, as we build our marriage strongly, that God, being in it, makes it the marriage he wants it to be, a bionic Christian marriage. Lord, you can do it. You can take a so-so marriage and make it great. You can take a bad marriage and make it better. Because you're for marriage, you thought of it in the first place. And Lord, I pray for the marriages represented here. Strengthen them, Lord. Build them up. And for those who are having deep, deep problems, give them hope. Know there is power available by the Holy Spirit to change and to bring life back into withered relationships. Lord, you can do it. That's your business. And we ask you to, for Christ's sake, amen.